Welcome to the Three Strands Podcast. We hope you'll enjoy the sermon you're about to hear. At Three Strands, our mission is to create a culture of redemption where people are free to experience the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. Yeah, everybody at some point in their life has this kind of heart-to-heart, sometimes with a friend, sometimes just with yourself, uh, a moment where you stop and think like, is there any meaning at all to this life? Am I doing anything that's fulfilling or valuable or going to really like make me feel like there's a purpose to this existence or is it all just kind of like aimless meaninglessness? And uh, that's kind of what we're talking about in this series. So if you're um, just here with us for the first time in this series, we're studying through the book of Ecclesiastes together and uh, we're asking the question, what is the meaning of life? And so Solomon is the author of this book. In this book, he refers to himself as the preacher or the teacher, and he's uh, investigating life. He's taking all areas of life, and he's examining them to find out if there's any real meaning in any of them. He, he wants to know what life is really all about instead of just wandering around aimlessly. And he is better suited than probably anybody in all of history to do this experiment because he's the richest, most powerful man, uh, and God blessed him with the greatest wisdom of anybody who would ever, had ever, or would ever live. And so here he sits with all this wisdom and all this power and influence and all this wealth and riches, and he's perfectly equipped to dive into all these areas of life and decide, is there any lasting meaning in any of these things? And, uh, So throughout the book, there's two phrases that keep coming up over and over again, and I have shared both of these with you each week of the series. I want to share them both with you again. The first one is his limitation on the research, his limitation on the study, the investigation into the meaning of life. He is willing to try everything and look everywhere, but he puts one stipulation on the study, on on his research, one limitation. It's this. He says, I've looked for the meaning of life everywhere under the sun. Everywhere under the sun. Under the sun is just a code for everything in the world. So I'm looking for the meaning of life everywhere on this planet. I'm not going to take my investigation or my research into the theoretical. I'm only going to examine stuff you can actually do and experience here on earth. I'm not going to dive into spirits or ghosts. I'm not going to make some kind of philosophical conclusions about eternity and heaven and hell. I'm just going to limit my research to the stuff I can actually experience and do and try here on this planet, here on earth, here under the sun. And so over and over again, you hear this phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes. The second one you hear over and over again is as he experiments and tries these different things in life to find meaning and purpose, he concludes that a lot of them have no value. And so you have this phrase that comes up over and over where he keeps saying, meaningless, meaningless, everything or all is meaningless, says the preacher or teacher, like chasing after the wind. And so we've looked at four of these already. We looked at the idea of pursuing wisdom and pleasure in week one, and Solomon concluded for both of those that they were both meaningless. That they're not bad things. There's nothing wrong with having wisdom. There's nothing wrong with experiencing pleasure. But they're just not the meaning of life. They, they just aren't going to ever do it. They're not going to give you eternal fulfillment and significance and value and, and give your life some kind of meaning. And then in week two, we looked at the ideas of work and justice. And those are two other things that a lot of people throw themselves into and give their whole life to. And he says there's nothing wrong with either of those either. Work is a good thing. 
And, and pursuing justice is a good and needed thing. There's injustice all over the world. And so he doesn't say these are bad things. He just points out the flaw in making work your priority in life because there's no meaning to it. In making your pursuit of justice the meaning of your life because in the end, what justice can you really bring about? So he points out all the flaws in the logic behind these things, and he doesn't say any of them are bad things. That's the kind of interesting part of this whole study of Ecclesiastes. It's a book filled with a lot of good things you could do, but they're just not the best thing. There's nothing wrong with any of them. They're just not going to give you meaning in your life, and so they're not going to be the ultimate thing you should be pursuing. So today, I want to dive into two more. He's going to cover two more. The first one is the idea of riches. And I know some of you are like, maybe if you haven't been here very much or something, you're like, oh, here we go. We're in church. The church about to tell me how my money's the devil, you know, and church riches are evil. Well, you obviously haven't been here very long because I don't feel like that. I want you to be loaded. Is that good? <laughs> I want you to be as rich as you can be. I'm all for it. I'm all for you. Making money, having money, using it as wisely as you can. I'm not one of these preachers that's going to be like, I think you ought to give everything you got away, go to a monastery, and just think about your life for a couple years. No, I, I don't. In fact, Solomon doesn't even say that. All throughout this book of Ecclesiastes, over and over, he says, you know, I can't think of hardly anything better in this life than for people to work hard and enjoy the fruit of that work to sit back and eat good meals and enjoy your beverages and live your life and and have pleasure and kind of reap the rewards of a job well done at your job. He says it over and over again. So I feel that same way. So I'm not here today to tell you that riches are the devil or that your money is evil because the Bible doesn't teach that. And Solomon's point in this book isn't to point out a bunch of evil things. They're all good things. And so the first, the next one he's going to dive into here is the idea of riches. So let me kind of read you. He makes this observation about riches. Let me read it to you, and then we'll kind of dig into it. It's in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4. This is what he says about riches. He says, Then I observed that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. But this, too, is meaningless, like chasing after the wind. There's that phrase again, right? Okay, so he makes this observation about acquiring a lot of stuff or pursuing wisdom or pursuing riches. And he says it's meaningless, and his kind of premise why he thinks it's meaningless is the root cause behind most of it. And he says the root cause behind most of it is that you want to keep up with the Joneses. Now, we got any Joneses here. I'm not talking about you specifically. There's a lot of Joneses in this county. But it's like, no, just the idea of like you want to keep up with your neighbors, You want to look and you want to see what your neighbor has. In fact, sometimes your neighbor has something that you didn't even know existed. And you never even wanted until you saw they had it. Now, now everybody knows this to be true on some level. Whether you think, I'm not necessarily saying you go home and you get the binoculars out and you look out your living room window at the neighbor's house. or Look what they're doing over there. I don't think everybody's like that. Some of y'all might be like that. If you're like that, stop doing that. Your neighbors don't want you looking at them through the window, all right? Stop that. But I'm not saying you're like that, but I am saying that if you really stop and think about it for a second, if you could pluck you out of your life just for a minute, take all the stuff you have right now, and put you on a deserted island somewhere with nobody else but just you and your family, your craving for new stuff would kind of go away. 
you kind of don't even know there's stuff you want till you see it. Everybody in the room knows that there's stuff at Hobby Lobby that you didn't even know existed, and then all of a sudden you have to have it to finish off that wall decor. And everybody here knows that there's tools up the wazoo, and you don't even know they exist till you walk through Lowe's, and then all of a sudden you need them, and you know, you know down in your heart you're not going to be doing a project for 10 years. But you have to have that tool because you saw it at Lowe's. Why? Because awareness breeds discontent. Until you know something exists, you don't even know you need it or want it. And every time I walk through Lowe's, I can find another tool, and I think to myself, oh, life would be so much better if I just had that. I'm pursuing riches without even knowing that's what's going on in my heart. So I'm not saying you're peering through the blinds or the shutters at the neighbors, but I am saying when you see the neighbor's new truck, something gets clicked or triggered inside of you. And all of a sudden, your truck doesn't look so good anymore. And when you see the neighbors move to a bigger house or they got a promotion or you know, their wife gets to buy whatever she wants at the store for their house, and then all of a sudden, you start to get discontent with what you've got. This is envy. This is what it looks like in our world. And, and, and Solomon says, most of the pursuit of riches revolves around that idea. And so it makes it meaningless. Why are you trying to keep up with all these people? In fact, if you could take the richest, wealthiest, uh, most successful person in the world from 4,000 years ago and drop them off right here today, they'd look poor. But yet they had the richest, most financially fulfilling life you could have. And if you could take somebody who's wealthy and rich right now and drop them 4,000 years into the future, they'd look like a backwards hillbilly, wouldn't they? So, you know what I'm thinking too, right, Michael? So, we're in Kentucky. I can't say that, okay? So, but isn't that true? Because it isn't really about how much you have. It's about how much you have in comparison to everyone else. And just to prove this to you, the University of Harvard did a study of their students a few years ago. And they asked all uh, this, this group they were going to survey from their student body, they asked them one simple question. They said, if you could choose um, between option A or option B, which one would you pick? And option A was, we will guarantee you a job for the rest of your life making $50,000 a year. Or option B is we will guarantee you a job for the rest of your life making $100,000 a year. Seems easy, right? Every single student surveyed picked the guaranteed $100,000 a year job for the rest of their life. Then they went back and asked them a second question. I just want to tweak the question and add one piece to it. <clears throat> option A or option B, if, if we could, option A is we guarantee you a job making $50,000 a year for the rest of your life, but everybody else around you is guaranteed to only make $25,000 a year the rest of their life. Or option B, we guarantee you a job making $100,000 a year the rest of your life, but everyone else around you is guaranteed to have a job making $200,000 the rest of their life. The majority of the students chose the smaller income. They would rather have $50,000 a year and be making twice what everyone else is making than have $100,000 a year and be making half what everyone else is making. Why? 
Because deep down inside of us, there's a thread of envy. And what we really care about is how much we make, how much we have, how much we accumulate in comparison to everybody else around us. That's envy. And Solomon says it's at the root of almost all of the pursuit of riches. And so it makes it meaningless. What value is there in you being better than your neighbor or having more money than somebody else you work with? What, what value is there in that? It's all vanity or meaninglessness, like trying to chase after the wind and hold on to it. He says this is the motivation. And so we're so quick to condemn what we see in somebody else's greed, but just write it off in ourselves, just a little weakness. And I was talking to Stephanie this week about like thinking through some different sins, and I said, do you think I'm greedy? Because I think greed might be one of the hardest sins to see in yourself. It's kind of easy to see if I lose my temper and I blow up at people. It's kind of easy. I've heard a lot of guys over the years admit to really struggling with lust and sexual temptation. I think a lot of people can see a lot of sin and, and, and mistakes and things that they do that are wrong in their life. But I've almost, I don't know if I've ever heard somebody say, I'm really struggling with being greedy. What we identify as greed in other people, we kind of write off as just like, oh, well, I'm just protecting my family. I'm just trying to make it in this world. We don't think we're rich, and so we think we can't possibly be greedy. Because greedy is just something for rich people, right? Well, not according to Solomon in this study. I'm going to show you what he says. But in case you're still struggling and thinking, I don't know if I'm greedy or not. I don't know if I struggle with the way I pursue or don't pursue riches. I made up a little financial assessment for you today, okay? So if, you want, if somebody wants this, they can have mine afterwards. But nobody's going to grade this. Nobody's going to look at your answers. But just be honest and answer these questions as I read through them to decide whether or not we have maybe more of a problem of pursuing riches and being greedy and envying people around us than we think we do. Let me read you the questions. You decide for yourself what your answers would be. Number one, how do you respond when you're around other people who have more than you have? Are you anxious, jealous, angry? Do you walk away feeling like there's something that you now just have to have? That's greed. Sorry. It wasn't a need. You didn't even know about it. Okay, question number two. How about after you walk through a store like I just mentioned, or you see an advertisement or a commercial during the Super Bowl? Do you just have to have something now? All right, next question. How much of your paycheck, you can go ahead and roll your pant legs up on this one if you want. How much of your paycheck is leveraged for the Lord? Thanks. How much of your, how about the next one? How much of your paycheck is leveraged for others? Are you saying I should give my whole paycheck away? No, I'm just asking you to be honest. Just answer the question. Like, you know, if you throw up a big old goose egg on one of those, does it say something about you or not? I'm just asking you to be honest about it. I'm not telling you to. I don't like it either. I wish you could be selfish and stingy. I'm with you. Keep it all. I like it. I just didn't get to write the Bible. God wrote it. I'm sorry. How about the next question, right? If you asked a trusted friend, to tell you how important they think money and stuff is to your life, what would they say? I don't even know if your friends would have the courage to tell you the truth on that. You'd probably hate their guts if they told you the truth, huh? But they'd be like, all you do is work. All you do is try to take the job that pays the most. All you do is, 
try to get more and more. You always have to have something new. You, you're never, you never seem satisfied. With it. If they were being honest with you, what would they say? How about the next question? If you made two lists, and one list was all of your financial complaints in life, and the other list was all the things you said you're grateful for that you had, which list would be longer? All right, how about this? If you made a list of all the stuff you still want in this life, and then you made a list of all the stuff you have that you've donated to other people, what would that list say about you? Would it reveal that you're greedy or guilty or, or grateful? Well, now I'm not talking about like taking your clothes to Goodwill. That's just getting rid of stuff you don't want anymore. I'm talking about actually giving stuff you have to help somebody else. If you compared that list of stuff you've done that with to the list of all the stuff you still want in this life, what would those two lists say about you? Maybe, maybe we have a bigger problem with pursuing riches than we thought we had. And we just don't know it because it's hard to see in ourselves. Solomon goes on to say in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. Now notice that what he says there is not that money will never be enough. Because I think almost everybody in the room, maybe everybody probably has enough money. In fact, if you compared yourself with most of the world, you'd be rich. You know the statistics say? If you have a loose handful of change in your car right now, you're richer than half the world. And that if you have the clothes on your back and two outfits or more hanging in your closet at home, you're richer than half the world. See, we in America, we don't even know what rich and poor looks like. Because our poor people are rich. We have no clue what it looks like. But what Solomon's saying, it's the love of money that'll never satisfy you. You'll never have enough if you love money. It, it'll never fulfill you. You'll never be able to acquire enough to bring you happiness or meaning. And then right after that, he's going to show you all of his observations of why pursuing riches doesn't work. I'm going to share them with you. Let me read you the paragraph. I'll give you all four real quick. And you can just be honest and decide for yourself, is he right or not? Are these actual problems with pursuing riches? Let me read you the paragraph. It starts in verse 11. He says, the more you have the more people come to help you spend it. <laughs> Somebody, Chad's like, I know that's true, you know. So what good is wealth except maybe to watch it slip through your fingers? People who work hard sleep well, whether they eat, whether they eat little or much, but, rare, but rich people seldom get a good night's sleep. We'll come back to that in just a second. Verse 13, there's another serious problem I have seen under the sun. There's that phrase again. Hoarding riches harms the saver. What? I thought saving was good. What's he talking about? Money is put into risky investments that turn sour. We'll come back to that one too. And everything is lost. In the end, there's nothing left. And then he says, we all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as on the day we were born. We can't take our riches with us. And this too is a very serious problem. People leave this world no better off than when they came into it. All their hard work is for nothing like working for the wind, like chasing after the wind and trying to hold on to it. 
And so he lists in that paragraph, maybe you saw him, maybe you didn't. Let me give you all four of them uh, real quick. I got a list of them for you. Here's what he says, right? In verse 11, he says that pursuing riches, it attracts the wrong kind of posse. Did you guys hear that, right? Everybody knows this to be true. If you make it to the NBA or you make any professional sports team, all of a sudden you got a bunch of new friends, don't you? They're just too eager for you to spend all your cash on them. Everybody knows that if you would win the lottery, all of a sudden you'd hear from that second uncle you hadn't even know existed, right? All of a sudden you got a bunch of new friends. They're all too willing to help you spend that cash. This week, Stephanie and I were talking. I don't even know what we were talking about now, but she said to me, she's like, there's, there's some people out there that think if you just dress kind of normal and have a job, they're like, it's your job to give them stuff. Like, they actually believe you're rich, and so you should give them some of your money to make their life better. Yeah, there's an endless supply of people out there. I promise you this. This isn't even in the Bible. I can promise you this. This is true, all right? This is truth that's not even in the Bible. There's an endless amount of people in this world that would love to spend your money. I can promise you. And so the more riches you pursue, and Solomon's not saying it's wrong to pursue riches. He's just saying, isn't this a problem? Is this a real problem or not? I mean, if the meaning in life is to accumulate as much riches as I can, there's a problem that the more I get, the more people hassle me for it. I mean, this is supposed to be fulfilling, and yet i got to fight off all the greedy people trying to take it from me, Right? All right, that's a problem. So he goes in another one. He says, there's a second problem with pursuing riches. It doesn't just attract the wrong kind of posse. It also turns you into a lazy bones. It makes you lazy. There actually shouldn't even be a Jersey Shore or, or, a, or like a real housewife of Atlanta. Or something. Like that only exists because they're so rich they don't have to do anything. It's not okay. It makes you lazy. Think about it for a second. What makes you sleep well at night? A hard day's work, right? If you lay around all day, taking a nap here, taking a nap there, sleeping in, watching TV all day, you can't hardly sleep at night, can you? But if you busted it all day, working as hard as you can, it's like you fall down, just pass out. You see what he's saying? The more I pursue riches, the richer I get. And the richer I get, the lazier I become. Think about all the stuff we have working for us in our life. All the machines and devices and people and making our kids do this for us and letting our spouse take care of this for us. And it just makes us a lazy person. See, we don't even know what rich is. Even our poor people are lazy in this country. And I thought this week about like Gabriel when he came to visit us from the Congo. Talking to me about what the average day is like in the Congo for somebody there. They don't have welfare they don't have food stamps. They don't have social security or disability. or They don't have any government assistance. And they got no jobs. 90% of the country is unemployed. So I said to him, how do they live? If they don't have a job and the government doesn't give them anything, how do they survive? And he said, they wake up. They go out. The women walk down to the river, fill up a pitcher with water in the morning and a pitcher of water in the night. That way they have water for the house. The men will go out into the jungle, and they'll either hunt or they'll pick some uh, wild vegetables. They'll go down to the river and they'll fish. That's their day. There's not one person in this room right now that is worried they're going to starve to death this week. We don't even know what poor looks like. Even our, even our poor people 
can be lazy in this country and still live just fine. But it makes you lazy the richer you are. That's why we don't see it because our whole country is really rich. And so we've all kind of become lazy. And then he says, not only does it attract the wrong kind of posse and turn you into a lazy bones, but he says it gives you a false sense of security. Go ahead and hoard as much as you want, but that's a pursuit of riches. But he says, the more you hoard, the more will turn sour on you. Whether it's money that you invest and then the investment bottoms out and you lose your cash, or it's food you stockpile in your fridge that grows something on it you're not going to eat, which happened to us yesterday. I got out some Swiss cheese. It was no longer Swiss cheese. I had to throw it out. Think about it for a second. I'm not a hoarder. There's not just one aisle through my house and stuff stacked to the ceiling. Let me ask you this. How often do you throw out food that's no good? Maybe we hoard and don't even know it. How many of you got shoes at home that you haven't worn for over a year? Come on now. Maybe we're hoarders and we don't even know what hoarding looks like. Brian raised his wife's hand. (laughs) That's awesome. We hoard and don't even know that's what we're doing. And he says, think about it for a second. The more you hoard, go ahead, hoard if you want. But there's a problem that comes with hoarding. You're depending on all that money you're investing. It could all go belly up. You're depending on all that food you stockpile, but it could turn sour. You're depending on all those clothes. You go, oh, I got clothes to the end of my life, but moths could eat right through them. There's a problem with hoarding. Yeah, it sounds like it's okay. Pursue riches, stockpile everything, but it might not last. You might have to throw it all out. Then he gives us one more. He says you can't cross your riches over the great divide with you. The great divide is just a way of saying death. Not one dollar is going to go with you when you die. He says you came into this world naked and empty. You're going to leave the world the same way. That's a problem. If, If pursuing riches is the meaning of life, and I don't get to take any of it with me. It's meaningless, isn't it? Meaningless. You just be honest. Are they real problems or not? I'm not saying they're all your problems. But I'm just saying in the pursuit of riches, aren't they a problem? He says, then he wraps up this paragraph by saying in verse 16 and 17, let me show you this. He says, all their hard work is for nothing like working for the wind. Throughout their lives, they live under a constant cloud. Frustrated, discouraged, and angry. I'm not calling you a hoarder. All right? I'm not saying you're super greedy and envious of everyone and going after money with all you got, but I am saying how many, is, how many of us in the room at different times in our life, maybe every day or every week, we feel frustrated, discouraged, and angry about finances. Maybe it's possible that the pursuit of riches has more of us than we'd like to admit it has. Maybe it's possible. That's all I'm saying. Is it possible? And if it's you, if you feel that, you're like, oh, I'm frustrated, discouraged, and angry often about finances. Maybe you've got a problem, but it's not a problem of money. No, Solomon pointed it out back in verse 10. It's a problem of the heart. Show, show verse 10 just again. He said, those who love money will never have enough. Those who love money. It was echoed in the New Testament by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, when he said the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not money itself, it's the love, the pursuit of riches is the, the real problem here. 
In fact, Jesus even said that the love of money, the pursuit of riches, this idea of how money weighs down my thoughts or I have to hoard stockpile stuff and it's never enough and I always need something newer and better and bigger. Jesus himself said that that attitude can literally keep you from hearing and receiving the gospel. I don't know if you remember this or not. In the book of Matthew, Jesus tells this story about a farmer who goes out and he throws seed all over the ground. He says the seed gets thrown everywhere, but it falls on four different types of ground. Some of the fee- seed falls on good ground, and it takes root and grows down deep, and, and, and it, it produces fruit and veg- vegetables, and it's healthy, healthy seed, right? And then he says some of the seed falls on rocky soil, like a layer of rock under the surface, and it, it takes root, but the rocks keep it from ever growing down real deep. And so it springs up and it looks healthy, but all of a sudden, tough times come. And the sun comes out, he says, and scorches the plant, kills it off. And then he says, some of the seed falls on compacted, hard ground, and it can't even ever take root. It just dies. The seed just dies before it takes root. But then there's a fourth kind of soil that some of the seed falls on. He says, there's some seed that falls on thorny ground weeds all over the place and it takes root and it grows up with the weeds but he says then the weeds choke it out and it dies off that ground listen to jesus's explanation of what that ground represents in matthew chapter 13 verse 22 he said the seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear god's word but all too quickly the message is choked out by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth Some translations say, and the pursuit or desire for riches. And so nothing of value is produced. Your desire for riches, your pursuit of wealth, your hoarding, your dissatisfaction, your envy, the greed in our heart can literally keep us, when we hear God's word, from even understanding it and letting it take root in our heart. Wow, that's a problem. If this is supposed to be the meaning of life, that's... That's a problem. So then Solomon dives into a second area today. He kind of concludes that riches are meaningless because of those problems he sees in it. He tries power. And nobody at that time had more power than Solomon. He controlled most of the world. And the parts he didn't control, most of them paid him tariffs and and, uh, uh, money just to, like, not attack them. And so he had all kinds of money, all kinds of influence, and all kinds of power. He does this deep dive into power, and he's going to pursue it and examine it. And listen to what he says. If you flip the whole way to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 9, he says, I've thought deeply about all that goes on here under the sun where people have the power to hurt each other. And you might be sitting there thinking, like, well, I don't have any power. But Solomon's going to disagree with you, and he's going to say all of us have power. The power to hurt others. Whether you're a president or a parent, you have some power. You have the ability to make somebody's day better or worse today. By the way you act, the things you say, the attitudes you give off, the demands you make on them. We all have some power over somebody. And Solomon's going to kind of do a deep dive into it. And he's going to come up with two problems with pursuing power. And I know you're sitting there thinking, like, well, I don't pursue power. Stay with me just for a second. Let me show you the two problems, he says, with pursuing power. And then let's ask ourselves if we actually pursue power without realizing it. 
So the first one's in Ecclesiastes 4, starting in verse 13. Listen to what he says. I'll read it first. He says, It's better to be a poor but wise youth than an old and foolish king who refuses all advice. Such a youth could rise from poverty and succeed. He might even become king himself, though he has even been in prison. But then everyone rushes to the side of yet another youth who, rep- who replaces him. Endless crowds stand around him. But then another generation grows up and rejects him too. So it is all meaningless like chasing after the wind. What's he saying? He's saying there's a problem with the pursuit of power. Now you could start off a poor young guy. You might even be in prison. And you could rise in success to be the king of a nation. But if you did, someday, somebody's going to replace you. Someday, somebody's going to take your place. And the problem with pursuing power is somebody's always going to take your place someday. You might be the most handsome, the most beautiful girl in your class, but I got news for you. Someday, you're going to be middle-aged. And somebody else can be prettier than you. Somebody else is going to look better than you. You might be the richest person in your neighborhood, but someday somebody's going to have more than you do. You might, you might have all the influence, and everybody might, uh, out of fear, do whatever you tell them to do, but someday you're going to look around, those people are going to be gone. <laughs> you might be able to say to your kids right now, as long as you live under my roof, you're going to do it my way. But someday, you know what they're going to say? I'm done living under your roof, <laughs> Right? So whatever power you can achieve, no matter what success and accomplishment and influence you can get, you're going to get voted out of office someday. They're going to find somebody else to follow someday. It's just inevitable. No king lasts forever. Where's the king from 100 years ago? Where's the president telling me what to do from 100 years ago? He's not around. Your power is going to fade away. It's not going to last Somebody's going to replace you. He says, yeah, they'll be quick to run to your side, praise you for being such a great leader, but then another youth will rise up, take your place, and they'll run to him. Tell him how great he is now, and your power will be gone like that. It's like chasing after the wind. It's not going to last. Is that a real problem with power or not? Just ask him to be honest. Here's the second one he says. It's in Ecclesiastes 5, starting in verse 8. Then he says, Don't be surprised if you see a poor person being oppressed by a powerful person and if justice is being miscarried throughout the land for every official is under orders from higher up and matters of justice get lost in red tape and bureaucracy. Even the king milks the land for his own gain. Now this one's hard to kind of see. I'm going to walk you through what he's saying there. But here's the second problem. He says eventually you'll get replaced, but then eventually, if you're pursuing power, you'll become abusive. That's what he's really saying. In other words, like he's saying, power corrupts, right? And absolute power corrupts absolutely. You guys have all heard that before? Maybe. I don't know. But what's he saying? Go back and show me the end of verse 8 and 9 there. I want to show it to you, right? He says, look, every official, every political leader, everybody who gains some power is actually under orders from somebody up above them. And so what he's saying is like, they might start abusing you, but it's because they're just following orders, right? And then he goes on and says, and then matters of justice often get lost in red tape and bureaucracy. They might abuse you just without even realizing they're abusing you. 
just gets lost in the mix. They're so busy doing other stuff, they don't even realize that they're neglecting you. And then he says, even the king who sits at the very top and has all the power you could ever have, even he abuses you to make more money off the land. That's code for taxes. Got that right? And so what he's saying is like, whether it's because of authority, whether it's because of accident, or, or whether it's because of, you know, uh, um, uh, ambition as the king. No matter what the reason, everybody who gets power on some level abuses it. All right. Now, you're not a king. Most, if any of you, maybe not even politicians. But if you're a parent, whether you want to or not, whether by accident because you're worn out, or whether because somebody else told you to do it, or whether because you're the boss in this family, it's going to be your way or the highway. Whatever the reason, you have abused your children. We all do it. Hopefully not all the time. Hopefully not so severe that they need therapy. But all of us do it. We all abuse our power. If you're married, if you're dating someone, whether by accident or by your own selfish desires and ambition or because somebody else told you it was a good idea, You've abused the other one. You've taken your power and you've used it for selfish gain. We all do it. Obey me. Get out of here. I don't want to hear you anymore. I'm exhausted. I'm using my power to get them out of my hair, right? It's like, now I'm not saying it's the devil. I'm not saying it's all evil. He's not saying that. He's just saying, if this is the meaning of life, if this is what life is all about, then you're taking what is supposed to be the most important thing in life, and you're really using it to hurt the feelings of all the people around you. Is that what life is all about? I don't want to do that. I don't try to do that. But sometimes we all do that. Every boss mistreats their employees, and every coworker is mean or grumpy or grouchy or abuses their power or is sneaky and manipulative to get their coworkers to do what they want. You don't want to do that, but we all do it. In other words, power corrupts, right? In everybody. At some point, it corrupts you. And there is power in the Bible, but in the Bible, power is supposed to be used to influence others for God's purposes. Not, not to manipulate people for our own purposes. And so he says these are problems. These are problems with the pursuit of power. And so he concludes it's also meaningless, like chasing after the wind. And we abuse power so often because we're so interested in just our own self-worth. Getting people to praise us, using people to get what we want, wanting people to think we're something great. All right, so then sandwiched in between all these passages about the pursuit of riches and the pursuit of, uh, and the pursuit of uh, power, Solomon kind of has this interesting little, you, you can read it for yourself, I'm not going to read it all to you, it's the beginning of chapter 5 in Ecclesiastes, but he has this like um, uh, interesting little real life example of what not to do. You know, don't pursue, don't pursue riches, don't pursue power, but now, now I'm going to give you like a real life example. If you're sitting here listening and thinking like, oh, maybe I have pursued riches more than I should. Maybe I am after power and influence to get my own way in life more than I should be. And you're feeling convicted about that. Solomon recognized that. And he's like, but don't, don't go to the temple or church and make a bunch of promises to God about how you're going to start leveraging your money for him. And you're going to start wielding your influence for his purposes and then break your word. Because that would make God angry, he says. 
Don't get all emotionally hyped up and think, you know what, you're right. I'm going to start giving the first 10% of my money to God. I'm going to start using all my power around the house to lead my family in devotional times. And then a week later, a month later, quit. He says, you'd be better off not to even make a promise to God than to make one and break it. Don't do that. Don't get hyped up on emotion. Look at the information logically and just be honest about it. Is your pursuit of riches actually worth it? Is your use of power actually going to give you meaning in life? Just be honest about it if you're going to make a promise to God. And he ends the paragraph in verse 7 by saying, talk is cheap. Fear God instead. Don't just say you're going to do something. And then he actually says, don't just say you're going to do something and then come back when you don't do it and make a bunch of excuses for why you couldn't do it. Oh, man. If you had a dollar for all those I've heard from myself over the years. I'll do this, God, if you get me out of this situation. God, help me now, and I'll do this and this. And then a week, a month later, you're like, ah, I can't afford to do that. I don't have time to do that. you got all these reasons and excuses why you can't do it. And Solomon's like, ah, talk is cheap. Just fear God enough to keep your word when you make him a promise. So that's where we're at today. Fear God enough to do what he says. Now, he mentions a few other areas in this passage, we kind of didn't really dig deep into them. You could read through it all on your own. I hope you're reading through this book with us, maybe. But he mentions some other areas of life that we're not going to dive into this morning, even though they're important too. Things like our time and our place in history, things like our friendships and our relationships with others. But he kind of sums this whole passage in the middle of the book up with a conclusion. His conclusion is this. I'll put it on the screen for you. He's really saying how we use what we have says so much about us. Whether it's our time or our relationships, whether it's our riches or our influence, he's saying how we use what we have actually says quite a bit about us. So I want to ask you today, where might Jesus, the God of the universe, be calling you or asking you to leverage your riches or your influence in better ways. That's it. Unless you've concluded that riches actually are where real meaning comes from, despite all those problems it has, or, or being the most powerful or the most influential or getting your way all the time is the most important thing. If, if you've concluded that, then you're out. You're the hard soil that's not going to hear the gospel anyhow. But if you're here today, and you're like, you know what, maybe I should be leveraging my riches for the Lord instead of for envy and greed. And, and maybe I should be leveraging my power and influence in a way that introduces somebody else to the God of the universe instead of just trying to get my own way all the time. If that's you, I just want to ask you that question. Where? Like, where is God calling you to influence your riches or to leverage your influence and your riches for him instead of yourself? That's it. And, and, and I want you to do that, not, not because I want you to. I didn't write any of this. Not, not because I need something from you. Not even because God needs something from you. He, he's not short on cash. But I want that for you because I don't want you to waste your life pursuing things that are meaningless, meaningless. Like chasing after the wind. I don't want you to be 85 and look back on your life and be like, all that money, I didn't, I'm not going to take any of it with me. All that stuff, most of it just rotted away. All those opportunities I have, I had to make a difference in one other person's life. 
You don't want to look back on your life like that. Don't pursue stuff that's meaningless like chasing after the wind. How might God be calling you today to leverage your finances or your influence, your riches and your power for him instead of for greed and envy? Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, would you give our group here the courage and the power to act on your word, to not just be hearers of the word, but to also be doers of the word. God, would you give us the wisdom to know what you're teaching us from your word and then the courage to walk out the doors and put it into practice and not make you promises and then break them, but instead to just fear you and keep our word. I don't want to talk anymore, God. I don't want to like make you empty, hollow promises and pursue meaningless stuff. I want to be the kind of person you want me to be, the kind of person that you say will bring me meaning and fulfillment. And so I'm begging you to give us the courage to make those kind of decisions with our life today, to leverage our riches and our power for your sake and not for our own selfish desires. In Jesus' name I pray. Wow, we hope that encouraged you and will push you to know Jesus better. There's no better life than the life that is completely dependent on God. Be sure to check back each week for new podcasts from 3SC.